the face of the planet is a man-made catastrophe. We need to sound the alarm. This is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit to 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for. And we're here to say to all of you, on behalf of the House of Representatives and the Congress of the United States, we're still in it. We're still in it. It seems like that connection to how people actually experience and understand climate change is often missing. And then we go, why don't more people care about climate change? Why would they? Labor groups and environmentalists have a complicated relationship. Efforts to mitigate climate change stand to create new employment opportunities, but they also stand to eliminate many unionized jobs, displacing workers in highly affected industries all across the country. So how can organized labor and the environmental movement come together in a way that promotes a just and sustainable society? That's the focus of this episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a contributing editor with Green Tech Media. This is episode four in our monthly Path to Zero series, brought to you by the public policy think tank, Third Way. With this series, we're exploring what it will take to reach net zero emissions by 2050, the science-based target that the country must hit to avoid the worst impacts of a warming world. In episode one, we get a primer from scientist Jane Long on why slashing carbon emissions is so urgent. In episode two, we discuss the various technologies we'll need to reach the net zero goal with former energy secretary and Nobel Prize laureate Stephen Chu. And in episode three, academics Jesse Jenkins and Leah Stokes faced off against my usual co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton, in a competition over which carbon-cutting policies are most effective and politically feasible. You can find all those shows in the Political Climate feed anywhere you find podcasts or via the Third Way website. In this episode, we're shifting focus slightly to look at how people are being affected by the transition to cleaner energy resources, starting with unionized workers. To dig deeper on this issue, I spoke to Lee Anderson, Director of Government Affairs at the Utility Workers Union of America, and Anna Fenley, Director of Regulatory and State Policy at the United Steelworkers. We have a candid conversation about how to support blue-collar workers and expand job opportunities while drastically cutting down carbon emissions. But first, to set up that conversation, I'm joined by Ryan Fitzpatrick, Director of the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing? Hey, Julia, doing well, thanks. These are strange times as the world confronts coronavirus, and not everyone, as we'll discuss, but most people are working from home. Um, yes, we are learning how to use video chat and getting really good at it. <laughs> well, I'm in LA, you're in Washington, D.C., so we'd have to do that anyway. So 
Um, but amid all <laughs> you're, this, you're well rehearsed. Exactly. Um, low carbon communication. Hey, there you go. Well, amid all this craziness, we have to talk about, I think, these big issues that won't go away. Things like how we transition America's workforce into cleaner jobs as we think about decarbonization. Because even as we combat this acute uh, crisis, the climate threat won't go away. So we're focusing on unions. And so I wanted to ask you, when we talk about combating climate change, why do we pay attention to unions in the first place? For a couple of reasons, I'd, I'd say, you know, one is just that they're a, a big source of political influence. They have a lot of clout. So it's just a little over 10% of U.S. workers are represented by a union. Now, that's down significantly over you know, other historical periods in, uh, in the United States, but it's still a lot of people. And when you think about it, you know, they have the ability to organize, to advocate, they contribute financially, they run advertisements, they can inform the, and shape the opinions of, of their millions of members. So, you know, there's that. They're, they're also particularly influential in some key battleground states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that are in the spotlight for the 2020 election. So, you know, the, the, the people and the places where they hold influence are really important. And I guess I'd also say that, you know, public sentiment toward unions has been on the rise for the past decade. And their favorability is above 60%. It's, it's highest among millennials. It's fast growing in that, um, you know, 20s and 30s age range. So um, they have a lot of reach even beyond their own membership. The other thing I would point out in terms of their relevance to the climate efforts, um, trying to get to net zero emissions by 2050, is the fact that they have the scale and, and the skill to help us reach those goals. So they've got the ability to mobilize tens of thousands of workers for specific projects. Um, they, you know, through their, their training programs and some really highly regarded apprenticeship programs, they have the ability to prepare some very highly skilled workers to do high quality work. And that's what we're going to need if we are trying to uh, build the infrastructure to have a carbon-free economy, especially if we're trying to do that in a matter of decades. So we're going to need their ability to organize, train, and perform. Um, and, and so they're ideal partners in a, a national effort to meet our climate goals. So obviously, there's a lot of different kinds of unions and many different kinds of union members, but some of them are people who work in the fossil fuel industry. So can union as a whole really get on board with the green economy as long as, they're, have, as long as they have members who work in oil and gas and coal? Yeah, I think you can. And, and you'll hear this a lot, you know, the union movement, the labor movement is not a monolith, that um, it really depends um, union by union. But um, a lot of the unions that work in the energy sector and in the manufacturing sector, they have come out very strongly in favor of a wide variety of, of climate actions. Um, and, you know, you've got the AFL-CIO, which is an umbrella organization um, within the labor movement. They've supported the Paris Agreement and vehicle efficiency standards. They have, you know, come out in favor of, of all types of very ambitious goals, and they've acknowledged the goals of, of getting to net zero by 2050. They, you know, they really stick to the scientific findings. There are really excellent examples of unions that are leading on climate. It's tough. It is a tricky spot for them to be in. As you mentioned, this would require some pretty big changes in the industries where a lot of their members 
are employed and and where they've built up. They've really had to work hard to get where they are in terms of of creating a a labor movement in the United States to protect workers and help them excel and launch more people into the middle class. And so the idea of of challenging that is has got to be very difficult, but they've done it nonetheless. And, and a lot of unions have really been at the forefront of this. So I would say that that for the unions that do support climate action, it's really important to them that the rest of the supporters, the, their allies in the climate movement are also thinking about the specific needs of workers, that we aren't just making promises and saying, yeah, yeah, everybody will be taken care of. It's really important to actually suggest how you would want to do that and then seek input from the unions and how do we make communities whole and not just the employees themselves, but also their families, also the businesses that they support in the community. So, you know, it's, it's important to get their input on making sure that they are given the right opportunity um, and that those opportunities that you're replacing um, current employment and current facilities with are as rewarding are as fair, are as holistically taking care of families, providing family supporting wages as the jobs that they have right now. So I guess I would say that, you know, the labor unions that are taking the lead on this, they want to be at the table, but climate is not the only thing that they have to look out for. They're taking, they're taking a big leap here um, to move their members on climate issues. Do you think that there's things that the environmental community needs to be aware of or ways that they can engage with the union movement, the unions themselves, as they craft climate policy? So, you know, they expect to see the others at the table, including in the environmental community, proposing solutions that work for workers as well. So things like carbon capture and nuclear energy, nuclear employees thousands and thousands of workers across the country um, in really high wage, good, good benefit jobs. They want to see an opportunity for that zero carbon resource to be valued and continued. They want to see things like carbon capture, which could provide a pathway for some fossil fuels to be part of a net zero economy. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a matter of putting themselves on the line um, and hoping that they're partners are going to take into consideration the needs of working Americans. Yeah, lots to hash out there, given not everyone's on the same page about what the solutions should be. And that's an issue that we want to lean into and put directly to some union leaders and get their thoughts. So let's turn now to that interview. Anna and Lee, thank you for coming on Political Climate. Normally, we try to avoid long introductions, but in this case, I'd like to hear each of you describe what you do and who your union represents, because I think it's important for our listeners to have this context so they really know where you're coming from and how you're approaching this conversation. Julia, thanks uh, thanks for having me on the show today. Uh, My name is Lee Anderson. I'm the Government Affairs Director uh, for the Utility Workers Union of America, I'm a member of the national staff. I work in Washington, D.C. on legislative and political issues uh, for the union. Worked in uh, D.C. politics for about the last 10 years. Uh, prior to that, I was a, a union side labor lawyer. So I've been uh, working in, around, and for the labor movement my whole professional life. Our union, the UWA, uh, as the name would suggest, represents uh, people who work in the utility sectors, meaning 
the electric, gas, and water utility sectors. So that's just what it sounds like, power plants, streaking water facilities, wastewater facilities, et cetera, across the country. And Anna, tell us a little bit about uh, your role at United Steelworkers and what uh, your union focuses on. Yeah. Hi, Julia. Um, I'm happy to do that. So at the Steelworkers, we are a super diverse union, but primarily focused on manufacturing. We're the we're actually the largest manufacturing union in North America. We represent workers in the U.S. and Canada and also have some strategic partnerships with unions in Mexico and the U.K. and other parts of the world. We really represent workers in a lot of energy-intensive trade-exposed industries, um, manufacturing industries like steel and other metals, paper, rubber, chemical, mining. We represent workers in the energy industry, actually, who refine oil and we have a few who run power plants as well, Lee. Um, and then we have um, <laughs> the, labor we union have, competition um, there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, friendly, friendly. And then we also have a bunch of folks in the service sector and healthcare, public sector. Um, but really, our union is a collection of of workers. I mean, a union is workers who join together because they know their collective power is greater than their individual power. So as an organization, our, our mission is to help our members have a better life at work and at home. And my role is working on our policy staff in Washington, D.C., much like Lee. I, I've, I've been doing that for a long time. Well, I asked the overarching question because I think a lot of people don't necessarily even know what all is involved in some of the big unions. As you just described, there's so many facets to what you do and the workers that you cover. And so understanding that labor is not a monolith, it doesn't necessarily work and agree on all the same issues. Um, if you had to give a temperature read on where labor stands today when it comes to combating climate change and, and the clean energy transition, how would you phrase that? Or can you point out some of the areas of agreement and where there are some differences? Lee, do you want to give it a go? That's a pretty big question that you asked there. Um, the, I mean, it's a truism at this point that the uh, energy sector is changing rapidly uh, here and abroad as uh, generation sources are, are changing due to technology and uh, climate imperatives. Um, in, gen uh, in, in general terms, the, the overriding concern that, that, is, that colors everything here is um, what are the jobs that are going to be lost as the change occurs and what are the jobs that might be gained? And there's all kinds of questions that are connected to those two basic points. Uh, on the first one, I mean, I would say that uh, in general terms, uh, working in the energy sector, that, that provides some of the best blue collar jobs in the American economy. If you work at a big coal fire power plant, um, you know, generally speaking, you have a good job. But as those power plants close down or the coal mines that supply them close down, uh, those jobs go away and they're not um, easily replaced or maybe can't be replaced at all. And the, and the people who work there can often struggle to find, you know, what's the next thing going to be for them. Um, on the other side of that equation, you know, what are the jobs that are coming on online? I mean, there certainly are as things like uh, the wind industry builds out um, or, you know, the solar or whatever you want to say. But there you have questions about how many jobs does it produce? What are the quality of those jobs? Where are they located? You know, some people have this idea that we can pick folks up out of a coal mine or a power plant and go over here and work on the wind farm. 
Well, it doesn't really work that way pretty much ever. Um, number one, it's probably not in the same place. Number two, that's a whole different skill set. Uh, you know, job quality issues are very different. I mean, there's just a lot to hash through there. So to, to try to answer your question, <clears throat> generally, the, the temperature of the labor movement is trying to understand and manage the change as best that we can as trade unionists. Um, but I mean, not to, I won't sugarcoat it. It's been, it's been difficult. It's been a tough decade or so for the energy sector folks. Because of the job loss and that you're referring to there? Correct. Yeah. And so, Anna, I know that United Steelworkers has written op-eds and been outspoken about support for climate action overall. Can you reiterate that point? How do you see union and climate action working together? And what are some of those maybe more difficult points that you're seeing? You know, I think the bottom line is as tough as this has been in the labor movement in the last decade or so, our membership writ large, you know, understands that climate change is real, right? Many of them enjoy hunting and fishing and being outdoors and they notice, they've noticed that nature has changed. Many have been impacted by some of these super storms or flooding. And, um, you know, our union has recognized that for a long time. We have actually a really incredible history, I think, on these issues um, that has brought us to where we are today, where the Steelworkers Union was holding environmental conferences and discussions back in the 50s because of you know smog from steel mills in downtown Pittsburgh and and you kind of move forward in time uh to when we jointly created the Blue Green Alliance with the Sierra Club in 2005 because we recognized that climate change was something that we all have to work together on so i mean i think People understand that this is real. Our members understand that we have to do something. You know, the challenge is just that that people don't want it to be at the expense of their job. And there's a lot of uncertainty because most Americans, most union members are just trying to make it day to day and pay their bills and send their kids to school. And, and you know, I think for a lot of folks in the labor movement, um, climate change has been a bit of a back burner issue. But for our union... It's really important because when we look at at the policy mechanisms and the things that we'll have to do as a society, it will radically change the economy, which will radically impact our members' lives or it could impact their lives. So, you know, I love the old adage, if you're not uh, at the table, you're on the menu. And and that's really one of the biggest reasons that, that our union is here, because we want to help shape this because we all live in this country. And in the on the planet, <laughs> yeah. And I want to get into some ideas around how you would would shape that future. First, could you paint a picture for me of what it's like for maybe one of your members? I don't know if a certain story comes to mind, but just so that people understand, when you talk about leaving a job at a power plant at a coal plant, saying going to work somewhere else, what does that journey? look like? Or if it doesn't happen, what is that person left with? I've heard stories about people wanting to leave, say, former coal communities, but they can't sell their house. I mean, are there stories you can tell that really illustrate this for people, what what your members are going through? Unfortunately, I probably have too many of those kinds of stories. Um, I'll give you one from a, a very large closure that took place in southern Ohio. There were two power plants, two coal-fired power plants located about a mile apart in a place called Adams County, right on the Ohio River. 
in the southern part of the state. Very rural, um, in general terms, very poor part of the state. But those jobs at the power plants were, were excellent jobs. Um, both of them closed at the same time. And these are small rural towns. And those those uh, folks, obviously, not only had they lived there their whole lives, but their families had lived there for generations, right? Um, they were you know, very deeply socially and culturally tied into those communities by the schools, the churches, you know, the local governments, the businesses. It's the, it's almost sounds like a Norman Rockwell cliche, like everybody knew everybody, right? That's small town life. Uh, but once the plants closed, um, not only did they lose all of their jobs, but the, the local governments lost all of the tax revenue out of those power plants. And that's basically how they paid for everything. I mean, the numbers were off the charts, like 75, 80 percent of the local budgets came from that. So immediately they had to start thinking about closing the fire department and the police department and the jail and the courthouse and the schools. It just it just doesn't work anymore without that revenue. Right. And it's just, as you say, some of our individual members, they would try to sell their homes as quickly as they could. But they're losing value, you know, almost weekly because everybody's leaving stories of, of individuals who the, maybe they found a job over i heard one fellow he had a job uh, in the construction industry over in north carolina picked up his family moved to north carolina tried it for a few months realized the thing that was the most problematic with that was that most of his family still lived back in southern ohio you know his parents his grandparents all of his friends everybody he knew was back in southern ohio you know they went to church together you know that's Sounds like maybe a, a small social science kind of a thing, but it's actually a huge thing for an individual person, right? You lose way more than a job in that sort of a situation. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the stories like that go on and on. I have to tell you about plants all over the country, unfortunately. One thing I've heard from critics on this topic is that, for example, when Expedia came around, the popular travel website, there wasn't a comprehensive plan to help travel agents adjust to the new reality. They mostly just had to adapt. So why is it important that we ensure that there's a just transition for people in energy? Is energy any different from travel or any other sector out there where we do need to be a little more holistic in how we craft policies and think of solutions? Anna? You know, I don't I don't want to say that energy workers are are they're certainly different from travel workers. Um, but I, I think that that the issue is really that we have these dual crises in America, right? We have this crisis of climate change, and we have a crisis of economic inequality. And the best fighter of economic inequality is the labor movement. And one of the, the challenges that we have is that the fossil fuel industry has a much higher union density rate than certainly renewable energy, but then, than other parts of the economy. And, you know, I hear that, that argument all the time, right? That we've had, we've had economic transition before and it's fine and people are fine. But I think, you know, as a, at an individual level, people weren't fine. And I think that the scale and the pace that we're thinking about for economic transition to combat climate change is so much faster and so much bigger. And it's the responsible thing to do as a country for us to manage this and to help people and to make sure that no one is left behind. If we don't, I, I think we're, we're going to exacerbate that second crisis 
on economic inequality. And so we've talked about how, uh, you know, there are a lot of union jobs in the fossil fuel sector. There are a lot of growing and new jobs in renewable energy and energy efficiency, new reports coming out all the time. Is there a way to bring those workers into the union fold? And, and if so, why, why would you do that? Is that something that, you know, your unions are actively working on? The short answer is yes, it is something that our union is working on. We actually, our union has developed an apprenticeship program, a, um, a DOL certified union apprenticeship program in, in Michigan that trains people to work on utility scale, wind, solar, and energy storage uh, technologies. And we do have members who are out there working on those technologies. Um, and those are very good jobs. Two things there, though. One is that those jobs we're, we're able to have because of decades long, long standing uh, collective bargaining relationships a relationship with that particular employer. So nothing had to be invented from scratch. Um, and the second thing is that although those are good union jobs, there aren't very many of them. You see these huge wind towers, you know, wind farms going across the landscape, and there might be four or five people necessary to maintain those things. Now, it is true that when you build them, that's a lot of jobs. Um, and when you make them, certainly, that's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of steel in a wind tower, as, as Anna will tell you. Um, but in terms of the jobs that will that will anchor that community where the towers are, you know, there's only so many of them. And again, that's only because we had an existing relationship. Outside of that, you have to go out to places and do old-fashioned 20th century union organizing, which for many reasons has become very, very difficult to do in America. Mm. Yeah, I would say that we're also really looking at at organizing members in in these new jobs. Um, we recently organized um, some workers at Proterra, which makes electric buses out in California, not directly energy generation, but certainly part of kind of the new clean economy. Our union is also super focused on how we build out the supply chains for all these new technologies and new ways of generating power and really how we as a country can take advantage of the manufacturing potential for all of these technologies, which, which are, those are climate friendly jobs too, you know? Yeah. So to level set here, is the idea of revitalizing America with the green economy a valid idea in your view? Is it a real idea? And by that, I mean, is it actually possible to reboot smaller American towns that previously relied on employment and tax revenue from, say, energy-intensive manufacturing or the fossil fuel industry? Uh, can you reboot those towns with low-carbon alternatives, things like EV production? So is, is that like an idea that sounds nice, but, you know, is tricky to implement in reality? Or is the green economy really the future? It's just a matter of getting there. Well, in the first place, I would say that the notion that the only thing that's going to save these communities is some sort of green energy technology is asking the wrong question. You know, I, not I nor anyone in D.C. really has the slightest idea what any particular community would be suited for. That's really known only by the people in that community, right? It may be something that has nothing to do with green energy technology. So that has to be driven from the bottom up, from the from the local communities to say what's going to work here in our particular situation. And the second thing is that, again, it's sort of asking the wrong questions to say, is the green economy the solution here? Let's back up a step and talk about the blue economy. It doesn't really matter what kind of an economy you have in terms of what technology you're, you're producing, building, whatever. 
if the jobs in all of that are low quality jobs, low wages, low benefits, just low quality jobs, you're not going to power a consumer driven economy with that type of employment. Our, our members, Anna's members, those are great blue collar jobs. Those people go out, they consume, they are able to take part in the economy in a way that you can't if you're, you know, way down the pay scale and you have sketchy benefits, right? So first question is, what's the blue economy look like? Then we can talk about what might the green economy contribute to that. Do you agree, Anna? I do agree. I mean, I think the other thing that we have to to really get serious about if we're talking about creating a true, you know, green economy here is manufacturing policy. If we don't make things here and have those kinds of blue collar jobs, then I think we're in real trouble both for the the climate and for our economy. So many of these technologies could be made here. It would be better for the planet and and if you look at the deindustrialization that's happened in in the heartland, you know, bringing back some manufacturing would be great for those communities, but I think we have to be really serious about the kinds of jobs that we're we're trying to bring back and what that means for both the planet and and people. So what does the path to net zero emissions by 2050 or sooner look like? If that was something we decided as a nation we really wanted to do, because it is something that the science tells us we really need to do, what would be some of those policies that each of your unions would want to see put in place to help make sure that the blue jobs and the green jobs and these two elements are both factored in here? Anna, do you want to give a shot at that? Sure. I think we need massive investments in research and development and then deployment and commercialization of, of technologies. I certainly just mentioned, you know, domestic manufacturing policy, but but the whole concept of how we need to make sure that we have policies that that prevent manufacturers from leaving to go to jurisdictions that that allow them to pollute more by creating markets for their cleaner products. I mean, we're looking at at a concept called Buy Clean that's gotten a lot of traction that our union helped pass in California that essentially uses government dollars to buy products that are made with less carbon emissions. You know, those are it's just one small policy example. The other thing is we need to do things that aren't specifically climate like we need to reform labor law. I mean, that's that's hugely important to ensuring that the jobs we're creating and the momentum that we get on some of these energy policy and emissions policies um, actually continues rolling forward with with uh, public support. Is if if they're having good jobs and they're able to organize, then that's certainly beneficial to ensuring that that strictly emissions and energy policy succeeds. Lee, are there one or two specific policies you could point to that you'd want to see in a path to zero transition? Our two unions did uh, quite a bit of work via the Blue-Green Alliance on uh, what's called a clean energy standard, uh, which in general terms means uh, let's focus on lowering carbon emissions without getting into these technology wars, right? What are all of the various things across the energy mix that we can do or that we have already that will make that um, easier to achieve, you know, in engineering terms. You know, just saying all we're going to do 100% for energy generation is wind and solar is not going to get us there. 
um, not just for political reasons, but also for, you know, engineering reasons. It just doesn't work that way. So then you have to think about, well, yes, we will have that as a part of our mix for sure. Wind and solar will have a role, but then we also have an existing nuclear power fleet, right? That's zero carbon. Now, of course, there are other issues there with the waste and et cetera, and that has to be dealt with. But the fact is they're already there. And if we take them offline, then we have to make that up. We're putting ourselves behind the eight ball. So how can that, how can the existing fleet contribute to that? And for the on the fossil side, um, for some coal, but certainly for natural gas that's coming online in power plants more and more, uh, that's going to run for many decades. Certainly natural gas is. And, and what can be done to do that as cleanly as possible? Well, there is technology out there, carbon capture technology that can reduce the carbon emissions. The point is not to pick winners and losers, to use, you know, the everybody's famous saying, right? Um, there's a lot of stuff that already exists. There's a lot of stuff that's already baked in. There's more stuff coming online. And we can't just flip switches and make things happen. That's just not how it works. So we have to think, how can this contribute to a low-carbon solution? And that goes for all, all of these technologies. So one of the criticisms of an all-of-the-above approach to energy is that it could lock in the use of fossil fuels, which come with other environmental concerns besides carbon emissions that are produced when the fuel is actually burned. So in the case of natural gas, one of the big concerns is around methane leakages. There's also worries about water use and contamination from hydraulic fracturing. So in those cases, carbon capture doesn't address the issue. So is there a way that a way that could even create union jobs to clean up a resource like natural gas from start to finish? Is that something that your unions are working on, that you're engaged on? Because if we are going to have fossil fuels around for a while, you know, are unions working to make that resource more environmentally sound from end to end? Yeah, through the Blue Green Alliance, um, both of our unions and and many other partners have advocated for a long time to fix leaks in the you know natural gas distribution pipeline system. And as an added bonus, you know many of those pipes are made by steelworkers in the U.S. So um, that's that's a really great kind of dual policy that that we love, but. But, you know, we we certainly look at ways to make those systems better. Yeah. So the environmental movement, much like the labor movement, is not united in all respects. But would you say that there is unity between environmentalists and, and union leaders today and those that are leading the conversation? Or are there areas where you are misaligned? How would you describe the relationship there? And are there ways that you'd like to see these two groups work more together? Well, um, neither movement is a monolith, that's for sure. Uh, there's a spectrum of, of labor and a spectrum of environmentalists. The The reason why the Blue-Green Alliance, if, if you're not familiar with that, maybe we should give some background. The reason why that came into being in the first place is because its founder, a fellow named um, Dave Foster, who was a steelworker out of Minnesota, saw the two movements fighting endlessly with one another over mining operations and and saw how um, the other side of the political aisle was exploiting that. And when it came right down to it, he thought, you know, we're all on the same side here in terms of being political progressives, but people are able to exploit the things that we have uh, that have that are dividing us here, making it worse. And so his eureka moment was, let's create this alliance where 
uh, an alliance of the willing, if you will, where those from both movements come together to talk about these things and at a safe table, as we like to say, to figure out, well, how can we get through this in a way that's going to alleviate problems for both movements? Um, it is hard, frustrating work, but our unions are a believer in the business model. Anna can tell you the steelworkers are one of the founding organizations. Um, and that's despite the fact that, you know, Anna's union is, is very energy intensive. And obviously our union is very energy intensive and we have a lot of disagreements. But the point is, as Anna said earlier, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. And so the Blue Green Alliance is a way for us to create a table where we can sit down and try to work through these things and not let the perfect be the enemy of the good, not be wound around the axle in constant political battles. And I think that I would say that there's the best of intentions from environmentalists as far as labor issues and labor's perspective. I've just been so impressed, particularly over the last year, as policy discussions around climate have ramped up. At I've been so impressed with environmentalists' willingness to sit down and listen. For the most part, they, you know, probably need some some more education on kind of uh what a union is and and the perspective of of everyday workers particularly blue collar workers but you know that's on us to help provide that and and i think on a national level a lot of those discussions are happening and they're really productive and i think we're getting to some good places you know to me the challenge is on the local level Environmental issues, climate issues are still very much dividing environmentalists and labor activists in local communities. And it's my dream to see that that stop and to, and to get people actually to come to the table and talk to each other. I hope that will be able to happen, uh, especially in certain pockets. But But that's what I would hope to see. Yeah, the politicization of energy has not gone away, which can slow the adoption of solutions even when there may actually be more common ground than meets the eye. But there may actually be a unique opportunity arising that could overcome some of the the entrenched politics here. We are recording this amid the coronavirus outbreak here in the United States, which is really impossible to ignore with large swaths of the country effectively on lockdown to slow the spread. So I'm curious, how are your unions thinking about not only the virus, but the resulting economic downturn? What would that mean for your members? On the one hand, you have some people talking about this as an opportunity, as part of an economic stimulus package to bring in certain low carbon measures, things like, you know, apprenticeship programs to help boost union uh, membership in green economy jobs, uh, things like a clean energy standard, things like boosting vehicle manufacturing here in the U.S., things that seem quite aligned with what you're talking about. But is all that nice to haves and will get lost in the broader uh, economic issues that we're about to see, do you think? So is this a time to look at those solutions, those green energy solutions, or is there going to be a whole bunch of other issues that you're dealing with that will make those hard to tackle? Well. Um the uh, look the, the shorter answer is that in, the, in the immediate term our focus is completely on um our our members our indiv- individual workers you know w- what is happening in their workplaces to keep them safe or not from corona itself i mean 
Uh, I guess a good thing about the industry that we happen to be in is that you can't close power plants and, and water treatment facilities and et cetera and send everybody home. That's There's literally no more critical infrastructure I, I didn't buy enough that. water bottles for that, so please don't. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we won't do that. Um, but the, the, the bad thing is, okay, we all have to stay at work. What does that look like? How does it work? You know, how does social social distancing work in a power plant? Um, what protective equipment do we have or not? How can we stay here and run this safely? That's number one for sure. And I think that we're still um, working on that. Um, that's mostly uh, a local effort. Um, there's people all over the country in our union dealing with that with various employers. Um, but if we get through that and get onto larger discussions about what just happened there, I actually think there will become an opportunity to talk about, and I'm going to use my phrase again, the blue economy, because this is is it, this is surfacing a lot of the big big gaps in America's social contract. We made a set of choices in the 20th century to build that social contract that differ markedly from choices that were made in Western Europe, for example, and their struggles are different from ours because their social contract and their systems are very different from ours. Now, obviously, they have a lot of uh, a lot of cases there in Italy and Spain and et cetera, but their ability to deal with that is different than ours, both in terms of the health crisis and in terms of the economic crisis. And I am hopeful that we will find ourselves in a space, you know, a year from now, whenever from now, when we can talk about our healthcare system, our unemployment system, our, our, our paid leave, you know, uh, policies, et cetera, et cetera. How can we build a more just society a more resilient society to deal with situations like that. So again, I start with the blue economy. Mm -hmm. And how are you thinking about coronavirus and, and the economic fallout from it? Is there an opportunity here? Yeah, I mean, similarly to Lee, right now we are, our union is very much concerned with, with the immediate day-to-day -day for our members, making sure that folks um, have a roof over their head and food to eat and everyone's healthy and safe. But I think looking more long term, I mean, we're very concerned about what this recession could look like. And we know that we're going to need some really strong, you know, unprecedentedly strong action from the federal government to make sure that once everyone's allowed to go back to work and we're not socially distancing in our homes, that um, that demand comes back and that that our manufacturing economy and, and other parts of the economy are back to running. I think as we look at, at those stimulus measures, you know, certainly that's a place for us to make some great strides on boosting clean energy technologies, um, clean energy manufacturing and, and investment to reduce emissions in this country. Certainly we made some strides with the, the recovery act and, some other measures put in place back in 2008, 2009, 2010. And I think some of those opportunities exist, will exist again. But, you know, really for our union at this point, we just, we want to make sure folks have a job and that they and their families are okay. Why is it important for America to have unions? Such a basic question maybe, but why is it something we should care about? Um, wow, that's the history of the 20th century right there. There has to be a, a balance of forces in the economy. I mean, that's the most macro way to say it, I suppose. And since, uh, you know, 
since forever, the, there's always been a tension and always will be a tension between labor and capital. And that's not, I mean, a, per se a bad thing. It's just a function of human economies. The point is, how do you manage that? And where you have higher union density, you have more balance of one against the other. There are always going to be power dynamics, and you have to find a way to manage that. You know, and I, I love Lee and his, like, macro love answer. <laughs> Can I give you the... um like the individual worker answer. So, you know, for an individual, you know, being in a union means that they'll have a higher average wage. For women in unions, it's the best way to make sure that they're being paid an equal wage for equal work. Union workers are more likely to have better benefits, you know, healthcare, retirement, um, Unions provide protection from being fired for any reason and, and provide a way to manage disputes with an employer. Union workers are more likely to have paid holidays, a vacation time. I mean, just on an, on an individual basis, unions lift workers up and, um, and give them a greater share of the profits or the, the piece of the pie that their employer has, which, which contributes to the whole overall economy and, and betters life for, for workers in a union. Before we close out, I want to bring up a topical issue, and that's the Green New Deal. It's a concept championed by progressives, and it's been a hot topic in the Democratic primary. How do your unions think about the Green New Deal as it's been brought forward by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Broadly, that resolution would simultaneously address climate change and economic inequality through a World War II-style mobilization around clean air, clean water, healthy food, and climate resilience. It also seeks to strengthen the right to unionize and prevent jobs from going overseas, in addition to providing all Americans with access to health care, housing, and economic security. So is the Green New Deal something you see working for your members, and is this a discussion that you're taking part in? Well, I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but back when it was first taking place, first coming coming out, it seems like forever ago now, but it really isn't. Um, I actually had some discussions with, with the staff in that office. And my essential question was, you know, what exactly do you mean? Because the devil is always in the details, right? I mean, again, I'm glad that Leanna appreciates my approach here. At the At the macro level, there are many things in there to like, right? But you got to say more about what that means, how it would work, what are the details. Unfortunately, I, I haven't really seen that happen since I haven't really seen that fleshed out. Now, there are other other places, other organizations where some of that work is being done, and, and our unions are a part of that on, on some of the pieces. But in general terms, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it is what it is. It's a high-level messaging document that calls out the fact that uh, we have some large systemic issues that need to be grappled with. Okay, we need to do the hard work then of grappling with them. I I would just add also that um you know uh, I think conversations were swirling a little bit about the Green New Deal you know certainly long before it was introduced but with our partners at the Blue Green Alliance we are both of our unions and and others put out a, a our own platform called Solidarity for Climate Action. And I would encourage anyone to to look that up. Um, I think at a thirty thousand foot view, right? We agree with the general concept that we have to deal with climate change and we have to deal with inequality. But I would say that from our vantage point, 
this platform that we developed jointly with the environmental movement really speaks to to some of those specifics that Lee is talking about about what would work for for our unions, our members, and and for the planet, you know, based on on the science. So to wrap up here, what do you want people to take away from the conversation? What should they know about unions and maybe specifically their members and where they stand on addressing climate change and, and driving toward net zero emissions? What do you think is maybe a misnomer that you'd want to dispel? Is there something you could leave us with on that front? Uh, that That's interesting the way, the way you said that at the end there. Here's a misnomer I would like to dispel. Um, I can tell you that there are a great many people who work in coal-fired power plants who self-identify as environmentalists. If you are the person who works in the water testing laboratory or in the emissions control equipment, I can tell you because I've spoken to those people. That it's how they see themselves as doing their part uh, to keep the, to clean up the environment and, and, and battle climate change and, and wonder why people are yelling at them all the time. So it's it's not fair to just assume that, that folks who work in these industries don't care. They absolutely care. And I think Anna mentioned earlier, they know, they're perfectly aware. So then the follow-on is, what are we going to do about that? There are a lot of questions that arise that come up when you say, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to change this? Mm-hmm. Anna? So I actually have two things that I want to to leave with folks. I mean, one is just coming from a manufacturing union. So many of the the technologies that are that environmentalists and climate change activists talk about and they want to deploy, none of these things just appear out of thin air. They all have to be made. And many of our members take great pride in making the pieces and the parts that could go into those things. And for our union, those are those are green jobs. Those are climate friendly jobs. Those are clean energy jobs. When you're making pieces that go into a wind turbine or a or a solar panel, and and I think it's really important as folks are thinking about policy to think about this in a broader sense, not just the end products, but how we really transition a whole economy to make the things that we need to make. So that was one. And then the second thing is, I'm, I'm going to mess this up and not, and I'll paraphrase, I, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but Rich Trumka, who's the president of the AFL-CIO, spoke at the Climate Action Summit in um, San Francisco, I guess it was in 2018. And he said something that to me was incredibly impactful, um, speaking to, you know, politicians and business leaders and climate activists. And he said, you know, if you're asking a union member, an average worker to sacrifice something that you yourself wouldn't sacrifice, then we need to talk about a different answer. And that really struck me because so many of the solutions are really asking people to give up their livelihoods, give up their communities, put their local schools at risk with the closure of facilities. And, and that hits home for people. And, and so the decisions that were that are being made in Washington and in state houses are not, they're not being made in a vacuum, and they won't be implemented in a vacuum. And, and I just hope that people take away that these are real people's lives. Great. Well, thank you both for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. 
Thanks, Julia. Thanks so much, Julia. Well, that's it for episode four in our Path to Zero series brought to you by Third Way. You can find all the episodes in this series on the Political Climate Podcast feed available everywhere or via the Third Way website. Thanks so much for listening and tune back in soon. Thank you.